1 Kings chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning, looking at the, uh, the life and times of King Solomon. And so we'll read the first 15 verses. God's word says this, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for, there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, "What? ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept him for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has ever been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Let me um, just kind of backtrack and fill in the gaps a little bit. So for the last two weeks in the Storyline series, we've been looking at kind of the life and times of King David. And now we find ourselves in 1 Kings into uh, just the third chapter and we see King Solomon. So 1 Kings, it opens up with David and David the warrior king, David the shepherd king is like what all uh, mortal men will become. David in 1 Kings, David is old, he's cold, and he's weary. And so for those of you in the room that aren't there yet, like that's the trajectory where we're going. We're going to grow old. We're going to get cold and we're going to get weary. And the coldness part is in there because there's a story in there about the Shunammite woman that's brought in to keep David warm, but there's truth in that. And so that's the way First King open up, that we realize that it's almost the end of this great illustrious King David and the end of his reign. 
right before David dies, um, David's old, like his oldest son, the one who should probably be heir to the throne. It's, it's um, actually Absalom's older, older brother, Adonijah. Adonijah will kind of assume the throne for himself and there'll be like a little another mini coup. But David has already promised Bathsheba that Bathsheba and David's son, Solomon, will assume the throne as well as who God has chosen to assume the throne. And so David will say, it's not Adonijah, but it belongs to Solomon. And David will anoint Solomon as king. And then David will do the same. The Lord tarries and does not come. The same that, that you and I will do, David dies. And so David will serve as king of Israel for 40 years. As we've talked about under David, we said that under David, there was kind of the, the golden era. He leads Israel into the golden era. And after David's sin that we talked about last week, what we begin to see is that golden, that gold in the golden era, it begins to, to tarnish. Under Solomon, by the end of Solomon's reign, the gold will no longer be tarnished, but the gold will begin to rust. And then under Rehoboam, Solomon's predecessor, Solomon's uh, um, son, what we will see under King Rehoboam is that gold will turn to, it will turn to dust. It will absolutely turn to dust. And we see that, and some of that gets set up in two weeks when we talk about the end of Solomon's life. When you think about King Solomon, I want you to think of four things. Probably much more we could think about, but here's four things. Three of them are gonna start with the letter W. One of them will start with a a different letter. Um, The first thing I want you to think about is wisdom. And we see that in the text. Solomon, God appears to Solomon in a dream. Solomon, you can ask for anything and I will give it to you. And Solomon doesn't ask for wealth. He doesn't ask for long life. He doesn't ask for victory over his enemies. Solomon asked for wisdom so that he may reign and rule with wisdom over God's people. And God grants that to them as well as the other things that he didn't ask. So the first thing is wisdom. And we'll talk about that a ton. Second thing is wealth. Because he asked for wisdom and not wealth, God gives Solomon wealth. And so there's, a, there's folklore that will go on about Solomon's minds and Solomon's riches, but they're all true. Solomon will probably be the wealthiest person to ever live. And so even in this prophecy that God says to Solomon, he says, there's not gonna be anyone like you. There never has been, nor there ever will be. He's talking about those two things in wisdom and in wealth. And so Solomon will be, will be rich. Solomon will kind of be and lead the children of Israel into maybe like the, the 1980s of Israel. You know, kind of, he's kind of like the, the Ronald Reagan. It's kind of lavish lifestyle, bigger than life kind of person and personality and the way that he lives, almost like trickle down economics, as well as he will lead them into some economic um, improvements that he will do. As we saw, even in the text, he will lead them into like different public works projects. He's gonna build the temple, that's next week. He will build a a palace, he will build city walls, he will build aqueducts. He's gonna do all of this he's going to be doing um, as as a sign of of the wealth that's happening in Israel and the wealth of even Solomon. But also we could say this about that under wealth, that, um, Solomon will, in an effort to build the public works project, Solomon will um, institute what's called the the corvée, that's C-O-R-V-E-E. And what that is, is that slave labor. Solomon will institute slave labor, which brings us to the next point even. The third W is wives or women. Solomon will have 700 wives and 300 concubines. Let that sink in for a minute. 
And as we even saw in the beginning of our text, he will take for himself foreign wives. And so you see that Solomon has married Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the leader of Egypt. He's married his daughter and brought her in. And what this is, is kind of like in European times, this is more than just a marriage, but this is also an alliance. And so Israel and Egypt, its former taskmaster, the former one that has enslaved them and oppressed them. Now there's an alliance between Egypt and Israel, which kind of makes sense about the whole slavery. It's come back around. And now what you see is Solomon is going to enslave. Rehoboam is even going to be far worse of a taskmaster to the people of Israel. Let me also just say this, that the wives, the 700 wives, the 300 concubines, this is a clear transgression against the law of God. That nowhere in the law is there like an admission for this. This is a transgression. This is a transgression for him as an Israelite, as well as a transgression for him as a king. And what we'll see is the wives will be the downfall of Solomon. It will be the ones, his wives that um, are foreign wives that serve foreign gods will be the ones that will turn Solomon's heart away from Yahweh, away from God. The last one is T for temple. The Futrell boys, uh, Dave and Dave, they said I should have said worship center and then all three would have ended with a W, but I didn't want you to get confused with David with worship. And so I just thought it'd be easier for temple. Solomon is the one who will build Solomon's temple, the temple that will be um, in Israel. And we're gonna talk about that next week. That'll be the text, First Corinthians, I mean, First Kings chapter six. Let's take that first one and let's talk about wisdom because I think that's the thing that when we think about Solomon, we should think of first and foremost. It's King Solomon and his wisdom. And let's just think about wisdom as it is in the Bible. Wisdom is this. Wisdom is a communicable attribute of God. And what we mean by that is it is a, it's an attribute that God has, but that God shares with his creation. He shares with us as human beings. And what I mean by that is he, he communicates it to us that God is all wise, God is uh, all knowing, all of God's dealings and all of God's works and all of God's plans and everything that God does, God does them from the place of wisdom. I listened to a sermon that my grandfather preached, uh, that he preached you know, several years ago, and he said this in that sermon, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Like, let that, re- let that rest, that's wisdom. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to our God, to God. And yet what we also know, that's picturing wisdom, God's wisdom. And yet what we know is God communicates wisdom to us. He shares that, that you and I as his creations made in his image, that you and I can either act with wisdom or we can act in foolishness. Either we can be wise, we can be righteous, or we can act foolishly and play the part of the fool. Wisdom, as A.W. Tozer defined it like this, wisdom among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. God sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. So God has perfectly chosen the ends of things, of all things, predestined those even. And God has also predestined and sovereignly chosen the means by which they will happen. Nothing, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? There's not, God's not um, guessing. God's not using conjecture. God is carrying out his perfect plan, his perfect design through perfect means that he has chosen. That's wisdom. What is the underlying current in all of that? It's the wisdom of God. Therefore, 
Tozer writes, wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision. God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows it all. He already knows how it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, all of those things. And so God is working in perfect ways and perfect means with flawless precision. Wisdom is always, it's pure, loving, good, and peaceable. That's true wisdom. We see that in the book of James. Comes down from above, from the Father of light, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. We pray for that kind of wisdom, and it's always wisdom that's pure, loving, good, and peaceable. Wisdom is so important that in the Bible, there's a whole section of the Bible that's known as the wisdom literature. So not only do I want us to learn the storyline of the Bible as we go through this year, but I want us to know how our Bible is kind of fitted together. And so there's a section of five books of the Bible in the genre. We talked about that a few weeks ago. The genre of that would be wisdom literature. And of those five books, Solomon will write some portions of four of those five books. The first one is the book of Job. Now, it's kind of confusing because Job also fits narrative. It's telling a story, but it fits within the biblical canon under wisdom literature. And what Job is teaching us, the overarching theme of the book of Job is this, is wisdom and suffering. It's how can we glean God's wisdom while you suffer and even suffer in horrible, horrific ways as Job does. And yet there's a wisdom that can be gleaned there. Job I know that's a generalization, but it's God's wisdom in suffering. Psalms and Solomon will write a few of the inspired canonized Psalms. What we see in the Psalms is wisdom in worship. Proverbs, which is mostly written by Solomon. Proverbs, what we see in Proverbs is wisdom in life. And this is a great Father's Day sermon to be talking about wisdom and to talk about the book of Proverbs, it's, it's great. There's not very often that we get thematic sermons to fit within Mother's Day and Father's Day. This is not something we normally do. The only time we try to be thematic is we preach, you know, Christ and him crucified. Wait, we do that every week. So we also do that on Easter and we preach Jesus coming in the flesh. Wait, we do that every week, but we especially do that on Christmas. But here we've got a thematic kind of sermon because we're gonna talk about Proverbs. I'm gonna share some Proverbs. And the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs is Solomon imparting wisdom to his sons. Now, sadly, we know his son Rehoboam will not follow that wisdom, but nevertheless, it's, it's written there. It's, it's him giving, giving as a good father should, him imparting wisdom to his sons. Now, my dad tried to impart wisdom um, to me. I tried to think about some of the sayings that my dad said, but none of them could I say in here and keep my job. So we'll leave those be. But oftentimes my grandfather, he would give me wise sayings. In fact, my grandfather was in the habit that he and my grandmother, that for my birthday, for oftentimes for Christmas, he would buy me a book, usually a Bible, but he would buy me a Bible. And in the front of that, my grandfather would write and kind of dedicate that. And in one of my Bibles, my grandfather wrote this and it's a kind of his own um, translation of a proverb. And he wrote this, he said, son, in all of thy getting, get wisdom. And that's what, pro, that's what Solomon is trying to say to his sons. Sons, in all of your getting, you're gonna get a lot of stuff. You're gonna get an education and you're gonna get degrees. And by God's grace, maybe you'll get a wife. And by God's grace, again, maybe you'll get children. And all of your getting and all of your acquiring, make sure you get wisdom. 
And that's what Proverbs is about, wisdom in life. The book of Ecclesiastes is about wisdom in old age. We don't know for certain that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, but tradition attributes it to him and it sounds like it fits. And what we see is a, an older, jaded, more cynical uh, Solomon probably and possibly writing about what wisdom looks like as he, from the perspective of an older person. You've got within Ecclesiastes these two voices. You've got the author and then you've got this voice called the critic and they're going back and forth in the book of Ecclesiastes. The last book of the wisdom literature is the fifth one is the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. And what we see in there is the wisdom of love. What it says is, uh, or what people have said traditionally is that Solomon probably wrote Song of Solomon as a young man. And we see that filled with romantic ideologies. Again, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is an inspired, canonized scripture. It's not just him writing a love story to his, to his wife, but it's, it's inspired of God. And so he wrote that at a young age. He wrote Proverbs probably as middle age while he's reigning and ruling as king. And then in his last days, he wrote Song of, I mean, he wrote uh, Ecclesiastes, again, from that perspective of that older person. Now to the text. Let's look at this, 1 Kings chapter 3. We're gonna glean out just maybe one verse, maybe two. But how did Solomon become so wise? He became so wise because God was willing to give Solomon anything. God appears to Solomon in a dream. Solomon, I will give you anything that you ask. And again, God has appointed both the ends and the means. And here's what Solomon's ask is, he doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for long life. He doesn't ask for victory over his enemies. He asks for one thing, and that is for wisdom, for an understanding mind in order to govern the people. And this is what the text of scripture said, that pleased the Lord. That pleased the Lord so much that God gave Solomon all the other things. Solomon will grow in wisdom and stature so much that another superpower at this time, the Queen of Sheba will travel all the way to Israel in order to witness the way that Solomon governs the people and the way that Solomon judges his people and leads his people. What we see is not just the wisdom of Solomon. What we see in this actually is we see God's wisdom at work. We see God's wisdom at work in Solomon to such degree that it has kind of an apologetic effect, a defense for, for God that others on the outside, foreign folks that don't worship God, that don't know anything about God, that are on the outside. What I mean by foreign is they're on the outside of Israel. They don't know much about Yahweh. They will come not just to see Solomon, but they will also to come to see this God who is working in Solomon. So three things I want us to look at for the next few minutes about wisdom. The first one is this, that wisdom is from God. That wisdom is from God, therefore you must seek it. Maybe the, the second part is wisdom is essential for a fulfilled life, for a blessed life, for a full life, for a good life. Wisdom is essential for this a fulfilled life, a life that God looks at and declares to be blessed and to feel fulfilled and contented by. Wisdom is essential for that. Number three, wisdom, it appears folly to a world without God. That there are times, and we'll see that at the end, there are times when God's wisdom will contradict or seemingly contradict. No, there are times when it will contradict Man's wisdom, what man says, 
It will contradict those things. And oftentimes from the place over here of man, they will look at God's wisdom and they will call it foolishness and they will call it folly. Wisdom appears folly to a world, not just without wisdom, but a world without God. And as we even see, wisdom comes from God. And so you have to have God in order to have wisdom. We see this even in the text, verse number nine. Solomon says, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern your great people. Now listen, wisdom isn't just, this isn't just an isolated text from the storyline of the Bible. That for those of us that have been tracking through and we're getting this understanding of what the storyline of the Bible is. And so if you've been here a year, even that text of scripture, there should be some, you know, some red flags, some light bulbs that are coming on. You should be like, ho, 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 wait a minute, hold on. And it's founded that, that we may discern between good and evil. Where we may discern between good and evil. Have you heard that before? All the way back in January, we heard that in like the Sermon on the Fall. We heard that in the sermon on creation as God created Adam and Eve and placed them, God's people in God's place, placed them in the garden and then under God's rule and God's blessing. And what was God's rule in the very beginning? You may eat of any tree in the garden except for this one. Do not eat from the tree of the, of, in the garden of the, the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die that that was the, the prohibition given there. That the first sin that Adam and Eve commit, it's a particular manifestation of pride. They wanted to be the ultimate determiners of what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. They didn't wanna to submit to the wisdom of God, God's good design, God is creator, he's created. And in God's creation, there is a good and a wise and a right design. And they didn't wanna to submit to that. What they wanted to do is they wanted to be the ultimate determiners of what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. And this is what the apostle Paul says about that in Romans one. He's, he gives like a summation of that. And he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. In their grabbing, their power grab at God to say, we wanna be the ultimate determiners of right and wrong, good and evil. In that, God's saying they're claiming to be wise. We wanna be filled with wisdom. This is a wise move for us. And he's saying in that they became fools. That as God created, he created with a good, wise, perfect design. And in sin that's rooted in our pride is an inability to trust the wisdom of God. And in sin, we're saying, we don't wanna follow God's wise design. We want to create for ourselves our own design. And this is when it says claiming to be wise, they became fools. This isn't just speaking about Adam and Eve, but what this is speaking about here as the apostle Paul speaks in Romans, the first chapter is, he says, this is the predicament of all of humanity. That for every human being being born after Adam and Eve, the natural inclination of their heart is to think they know what's best. It's to power grab in their pride. It's to try to be wise, but the truth is they're going to be fools. I like to, sum, to give a summation statement like this and say, every human heart after that will be filled with arrogance and ignorance. That is the problem, of, that is the problem with mankind apart from the work of God 
in our hearts. We're filled with arrogance where we think we know everything. We think we know better. And we're so arrogant that we're blind to our ignorance. And we're so ignorant that we can't see our arrogance. We're just caught up in this cycle of living life where we're of arrogance and ignorance, arrogance and ignorance, arrogance and ignorance. And that is what he's declaring about mankind. That in their, in their wisdom, in their grab for wisdom, they become fools. And what we see in Genesis, we see it in Romans, we see it throughout the Bible, is that sin wrecks everything. But that first sin, it has wrecked everything. And Satan and death, they've ravished God's good design. But now what we see, this is the storyline of the Bible, that God in the person and the work of Jesus is putting everything back together again. And what wisdom is, is wisdom is showing us, it's leading us, it's revealing to us God's good design so that we might trust him in it. Now, I've used this illustration before, but I think it's a fitting illustration. There's this place that's hell on earth called Ikea, right? This store that's just tough, right? And there will come a day, those men who have yet to be there, I think most of them in the room are there. For the younger men in the day, I'm preparing you here with some wisdom. As a sage husband, a sage father, I impart this wisdom. You someday, by God's grace, may get married. And your wife one day will look at you after a couple of years of marriage and she'll say, we need a coffee table. And you'll say, we have a coffee table. And she'll say, no, that's a cardboard box. That's not a coffee table. We need a real coffee table. And she will want you to go to Ikea and you will go to Ikea and you will purchase said coffee table and some other pieces. And then you will ensue trying to put that thing together. And what it really what will happen is, is you will start off at Ikea and your journey for a coffee table will end in my office with marriage counseling. That's what's gonna happen. I'm just telling you that now. Now imagine I go to Ikea and I buy a couple of pieces of furniture and I unbox said pieces of furniture in this room. I dump out all the pieces and I mix them all up. And then I take all of the screws, nuts, and bolts, the 26 pounds that comes with each piece, and I sew them. Do you know what it means to sew something? Just I just sling them, right? So I sling all the nuts and the bolts and all the pieces around. I hide the instruction manual, and then I hand you a wrench. And I say, hey, put some stuff together again. Now, some of you men, especially in the room, you would say, you know what? I can figure this out. I can do it. And you're gonna go at tackling that and you're gonna try your best to piece all of that together. But here's what you're gonna be doing. You're gonna be assembling and disassembling and trying to organize and try to figure and trying to piece all of that out because you don't have any instructions and you don't have a picture and you don't really know what you're trying to build. Now, listen, I'm not saying that the Bible is God's instruction manual for life. I would never say anything that corny. Well, I've said some things equally as corny, but I would never say anything that prosaic or that cliche about the Bible. What I am saying is wisdom is the instruction manual. That what wisdom is, is wisdom is showing us a picture through the Bible. God's wisdom is, God is revealing his wisdom to us in the Bible. And what the Bible is showing us, it's showing us God's good design for humanity. God's good design for life. He's showing us what the fulfilled life looks like. And he's showing us also how to do it how to put the pieces back together. So you don't have to assemble and dissemble pieces. See, there are two types of people, men and women. Now, there's two types of people, the prideful and the humble. That's the book of Proverbs, the wise and the fool. 
And the person filled with pride says, I'll figure it out. I don't need your stinking picture. I don't need your wisdom. I've got it. I'll figure it out. And the humble says, you know what? I can't figure out. Or in fact, what happens is we almost always start off prideful and then we fail and then we say, I can't do it. I need help. I don't wanna waste my time, my energy, my effort, instruct me. Throughout the book of Proverbs, there's these two characters, the wise and the fool, and the wise is saying that. The wise is crying out. He's trying to live the submitted life, the righteous life, life according to God's plan. And then there's the fool who's trying to live life apart from God and his wisdom. And wisdom starts here. It starts with the declaration that we don't know. It starts with us admitting our arrogance and admitting our ignorance and going to God. That's why I started with here. Wisdom is from God and wisdom must be sought. Solomon will write and he will say, seek it like silver, son. Search for it as hidden treasure. And when you find it, prize it highly. That God gives wisdom to people who humbly seek him and his wisdom. You can't get wisdom apart from knowing God. That's where it always begins. That the book of Proverbs will declare wisdom starts, knowledge starts, knowing anything of life starts with a proper fear of God, a proper fear of the Lord. And what he's saying there, it begins with a right relationship of God, knowing who God is and who you are. And the key to knowing that for us, the key to knowing that is Jesus Jesus has come to reveal God to us, to show us. He's the one that puts us with him together in right relationship. And that is where wisdom begins. It begins with that declaration to humbly to seek God and to seek his wisdom. Two times Solomon will say in Proverbs 14, 12, 16, 25, pretty much identical verses. You may need that for jeopardy someday. What are the two verses in the Bible that are identical? It's this one that God, it's this one here but there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is no wisdom for life apart from God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And if you do that, look, he says, here's the promise that goes with it. It will be healing to your flesh. He's not talking about physical healing here. He's talking about spiritual refreshment and refreshment to your bones even. He's talking about the good life. He's saying the path of the good life comes with a right relationship with the Lord, not trying to do things on our own. James, which is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament, James writes it like this. James says this, if any of you lack wisdom, Now, you may go like, how do I know if I lack wisdom? Again, the arrogant and the ignorant, you're blind to that. You would say, I don't lack wisdom. I've got plenty of wisdom. I got wisdom for everybody. You need some wisdom, take some of my wisdom. I know what I'm doing, but that's arrogance and ignorance. Do you lack wisdom? Well, let me ask you this kind of set of questions that I jotted down. Are you frustrated by life? Are you constantly, are you constantly frustrated by life? I understand we're in a season right now that is frustrating for life. I'm not just talking about this season. I'm talking about, are you you constantly frustrated by just the day-to-day living life, just the day-to-day doing, the day-to-day of of getting up and putting on work shoes and going to work and doing life and doing the things that we do in life? Are you constantly frustrated by life? 
Does it feel as if your life is devoid of contentment? Does your life feel empty? Does your life feel devoid of meaning? Are you bored with life? Do you feel that you're constantly constructing, deconstructing, reconstructing your life? 50-something years old and still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up? Starting new jobs, starting new plans, starting new families, starting new, starting new, start. Like, is that you? Oftentimes it's because you lack wisdom. Would you say that, hey, I'm a saved, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I still feel like there's something lacking in my life. Wisdom is what you're lacking. And how do you get wisdom? What's here in the text? If any of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? You ask. Let him ask God, who, generous, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's what the book of James says, that we must ask for wisdom. We must seek God's wisdom. In fact, let me just give for you in a practical way, like maybe you read that James passage, maybe you heard that list of questions, you go, that's me. Well, let me give for you just some help in this. It's almost like a prescription from the Bible that um, there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. And what else is there like between 28 and 31 of? days of the month. It's almost as if God is saying, hey, you know what? Read a chapter of Proverbs a day. Now that's a rhythm that I've worked into my life from time to time. There's been certain months and months that have gone on that for those months I've read, started the day every day with a chapter of Proverbs. And I cannot tell you how helpful it is just imparting wisdom in that. And by the time you're into it, third or fourth time into it, by the time you're that deep into it, you get familiar with the story. You get familiar with the proverb. You're seeing what Solomon is saying and you're heeding that and you're seeing that in your life and you're using that. And it's like that wisdom is kind of like exuding out of you. In fact, I know a, a couple too. I had two professors while I was at Southern Seminary and one of them I remember said he read a chapter of Proverbs every day for 14 years consecutively. Like uh, the days you had the flu, but that's what he said. The days you woke up with stomach, you, but he read it. I think that would be a great thing for us to do. Remember that as you're reading through the book of Proverbs, that Proverbs are, it's the book of Proverbs, not the book of promises. A proverb is a concise, memorable saying, usually in a poetic form. It's expressing a generally accepted observation about life as filtered through the biblical revelation. I say that because Proverbs are generally true. There are exceptions to the rules. I see people on Facebook all the time using Proverbs as if they're promises made of God, and they're not. There are exceptions to the rules, but this does not erode away at the truth or the wisdom being revealed in Proverbs. Proverbs is from God. It must be sought. That means by seeking it, it's through a right relationship with God. And then even after that, we humbly submit to God's wisdom as it's revealed throughout Scripture. Wisdom is essential for the fulfilled life. Wisdom, lastly, appears folly to a world without God. Actually, I'm going to take those two together. That we must trust in the wisdom of God. There will be times when God's wisdom will contradict you. It will contradict your intellect. It will contradict your own intuition. It will contradict your own thought of wisdom. God's wisdom will, at times, it will contradict sage advice. 
It will contradict folk wisdom. Heaven forbid, but it is true. It may contradict your parental advice that was given to you that was devoid of biblical truth. It will certainly contradict world, worldly cliches and worldly sayings. And, you, and here is the deal. You must trust the wisdom of God and you must obediently follow it. So when God says that you must heed his wisdom in work, heed his wisdom in work. When God says work six days a week and on the seventh day you're to rest, guess what God means by that? God means work and work hard for six days, but on the seventh day, what you need to do is you need to rest. There's times where we go, no, 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 no. I need to work seven days a week. You know, I've seen it. My dad has always owned his own businesses and that's been the rhythm. We work seven days of a week. We gotta keep going. Now I understand there's times as the Bible declares, there's times whenever there's an ox in the ditch and you gotta go help get it out. And so there is times, weeks that you need to work seven days, but as a general rhythm, you need to take the day of Sabbath. And in that, what are you saying? You're saying, God, I trust your design for work. The best thing that you can do on the Sabbath is get up early and get dressed and come to church and serve while you're here at church and then go home, eat lunch, lay down, take a nap to the glory of God. Get up in the evening, take a walk, do something enjoyable, go fishing, right? Do something you find fun and enjoyable. Eat a meal and go to bed early. That's what the Sabbath is for. And in that, it's a declaration of trust, that you're trusting that God can do more in your six days than you think you can do in your seventh day. You need to trust God's wisdom in work. You need to trust the wisdom of God when it comes to money. The Bible divides up money in at least three categories. There's money that you spend, there's money that you save, and then there's money that you give away. But the Bible calls us to be generous. Now, I know there sounds counterintuitive. Again, I heard my grandfather say one time that God can do more with your 90% than you can do with your 100%. And that is true. That we believe in the principle of the tithe. We believe that we should take a chunk of our money that's about 10% and we should give that to God. Now, that's not something we do legalistically and we're not legalistic around here. Every offering that you give to God through the church, every one of those offerings, that that is a free will offering that you're giving, but it's what God is commanding you to do. He's commanding you to be a spender and he's commanding you to be a saver and he's commanding you to be generous, to be generous like he is. And you need to trust the wisdom of God in that. And you need to become a giver and you need to become generous, but I won't have as much to spend and I won't have as much to save. You gotta trust God in that. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about something legalistic. I'm talking about trusting God in wisdom of being a generous giver that's throughout the, throughout the scriptures. We must trust the wisdom of God when it comes to sex and relationships. We must trust the wisdom of God when it comes to parenting. That wisdom would be stay the course. That wisdom would be got gracious discipline works. That wisdom will be don't let the inmates run the jail or the monkeys run the zoo. Wait, that's not in Proverbs, but it's true. That's the wisdom that comes in. Listen, Solomon's life unravels, and we'll see that in two weeks, and it falls apart when he fails to live obediently to the law of God and heed the wisdom of God. He'd be wise in so many areas, but Solomon fails to trust the wisdom of God and it leads him to disobedience and the marrying of foreign wives and they will lead him astray. They will lead his heart away from God. That the world will say, 
If you're gonna be happy, you need to be true to yourself. But the Bible says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't trust in yourself. The, the world will say, follow your heart and follow your passions. But the Bible says there is a way that seems right to man and in the end, it leads to death. The world will say, pursue wealth and beauty. And the Bible says, charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain. But the woman or man that fears the Lord is, to who, is who will be praised. Wisdom will sound foolish to our world without God because this world despises, stands in opposition to, contradicts the wisdom of God, and it always has. Jesus will come to this earth as an embodiment of God's wisdom. He is, the very, he is God, and therefore he is the very wisdom of God in the flesh. Jesus will declare about his own life. He'll say something greater than Solomon is here. And yet the world will call him a fool. They will accuse him of blasphemy. Even his own brothers, his own family would think that he's out of his mind. Ultimately, they will all reject Jesus. And as the pinnacle of the rejection of the wisdom of God, they will crucify Jesus. He will die naked, suffering, and in shame. And the apostle Paul says this, even that message the word of the cross, the message of the cross, that display of weakness and of humility and of love and of sacrifice, the world says that that is foolish. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power and the wisdom of God. It is through our humble acceptance of it that you and I, we are saved and we experience life. We'll end here with Proverbs 3, 7 again. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom, the wisdom that you've revealed to us, your good, right design, your wise declaration that we in our pride have sinned against you that we have fallen short. And you and your wisdom that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die in our place as a substitute, to rise again as a sign of victory, to his, his resurrection as our resurrection. That's what it's a picture of. And we thank you for the wisdom in that. That Jesus, you didn't just die as an example of suffering. You didn't just die as an example of the righteous dying at the hands of the unrighteous, but you died as a substitute. And that we, in our humility and our humble acceptance of that, that we could be saved. We look at the cross, those of us who are being saved by it, and we say that it is full of wisdom, full of love, full of grace, and we receive it. Jesus, we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.